0: Now we're going to talk about the transformative social-emotional learning and the social-emotional learning environment. The transformation, in fact, of social-emotional learning in this general subject. So this is In the broad scope of the themes of the lectures following kind of a continuous storyline, we've had the theft of education to replace it with a Marxist religious revival that overcomes the problem of reproduction. The Marxist religious revival focuses on conscientization or thought reform, which can be summarized as turning schools into groomer schools, um, which is uh, to, to, like I said, to create the process of thought reform. And now we have to answer the question of why and how specifically are they um, transforming education? into social-emotional learning. What is the education of the future supposed to look like according to these people? And so as a little through line continuing the story, the primary tool for the conscientization or the thought reform process that we just discussed is a program generally known as social-emotional learning. I've mentioned lots of things, culturally relevant teaching and so on, that are also part and parcel with this. But Social-emotional learning is the primary vehicle and as you will come to understand It is, in fact, being infused into literally everything. It will not merely be in the schools. It's meant to be everywhere, in everything. So by learning what social-emotional learning is and who's pushing it, what huge entities are pushing it, we can learn that social-emotional learning isn't just a vehicle for conscientization in some small-scale way. It is, in fact, the key operating tool to uh, achieve an agenda to install a completely new system in the world from top down, bottom up, and inside out all at once. Certain entities are pushing this agenda. The World Economic Forum and the United Nations are two that are really worth mentioning as far as you know foundation type things go. And they have figured out that to attempt a full-blown revolution throughout the West, or in accordance with the whole world, It will require simultaneously building the new world in an economic and social model while raising the generation to fill it. That has to occur at the same time. And so then you unleash the new generation into the new world and everything transitions, say through a great reset, seamlessly. The implementation of this two-pronged agenda then, one from the top down, one from the bottom up, is the outstanding fact of the past 30 years of our lives that we've only become really aware of in maybe the last two years. And so, by the way, that is a message of hope. This is a 50-plus year plan, 30 years kind of in direct implementation, and in two years, we've already made it seemingly very untenable. A very large number of people are aware of it. A very large number of people are aware that it's not just something that's happening. I keep having these conversations on flights where I'll end up sitting next to some person, some business person, And they'll tell me something like, well, Looks like they're just gonna get rid of cars. I guess we're just gonna have to that's just what we're gonna have to do now. We're just gonna have to go along with it. As though that's just like something we're fated to have to accept because they're doing it. That's just what we're looks like. We're just gonna transition all to electric cars. We just that's just what it is now. That's just what we have to do, that's just how it is. Cars all have some push button ignition with a microchip. That's just how it we just that's just what we have to do. We just have to adapt. If there's no microchips, we don't have any new cars. Looks like we're just gonna have social emotional learning in the schools. We're just gonna go along with this. And this is the big point. You don't have to just go along with this. You do not have to go along with the indoctrination or programming of your children. You do not have to go along with the data mining of your children so that they can build out a social credit world. You don't have to go along with a social emotional learning program that hijacks and steals away from them genuine education and replaces it with something where they're educating them or training them in social and emotional literacy and so-called emotional IQ which we now have good reasons to believe doesn't even exist and probably has more to do with your linguistic uh, capacity around emotional words that you can understand the fine graded meanings between different emotionally sounding words like anger and rage as opposed to having some intuitive sense of what your emotions are or some maturity about your emotions. Of course, social emotional learning is sold with a very pleasant Um, kind of bill, it's sold to us under the guise that, well, we're going to teach kids to navigate their social situations in a complex world. We're going to teach them to manage their emotions, we're going to teach them to manage the stresses that come with their academic experience, with their life experience. We're going to teach them to manage their interactions with one another so that they grow up more mature, more accepting, more inclusive, more blah, 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 blah. And of course, if it were only that, we might have reason to raise an eyebrow and say, uh, okay, maybe that's not your job. But it's not only that. So we have reasons to scream, you have to stop or we're going to put you in prison. So as a reminder of what we're dealing with, let's go back to Paulo Freire, who is our anchor point for this thing. This is from the 10th chapter of the Politics of Education. And I just wanna remind you of something I said earlier also. At this point, what's happening, I said this in the Q&A session, I'd like to say it again. Um, What's happening in education is happening in parallel in faith in the churches. Both are seen as avenues for values education. And I'm bringing up this point because I mentioned that this is the 10th chapter of Politics of Education. And if you bother to read that book or just skip to the 10th chapter and read that book, you'll find out that the 10th chapter of that book talks about education for a couple of pages. And after that, it's literally just about the role of the church. This is the education book that led to Paulo Freire's work being accepted throughout American schools. And the 10th chapter is dedicated to Paulo Freire getting on a soapbox and telling churches how they should organize themselves. And there are three options for how churches can be. That's not what this quote is about, this is an aside. They can be the traditional or reactionary church, which he's very against. They can be the modernizing church, just like a modernizing school that exchanges blackboards for projectors and achieves nothing or they can be the prophetic church that, that makes a prophecy of a new world by denouncing the existing world to bring it into being the new world, which is the thing in the foreword written by Henry Giroux that he said was, he said, remember, Paulo Freire's vision is prophetic, specifically in that it seeks to bring the kingdom of God on earth, to make the kingdom of God on earth in solidarity with the oppressed. And in fact, this is what we're going to read from this chapter 10. Education for liberation does not merely free students from the blackboards just to offer them projectors. So we're going to elaborate on this quote. On the contrary, it is concerned as a social praxis with helping to free human beings from the oppression that strangles them in their objective reality. So this is the goal of education now. It is, by the way, objective reality, when a Marxist says it, means how Marxists interpret, interpret their lives. It is not objective reality at all. It is therefore political education, just as political as the education that claims to be neutral, although actually serving the power elite. It is thus a form of education that can only be put into practice systematically when the society is radically transformed. I know I said this before, we're revisiting this quote because the idea that society has to be radically transformed before it's real is key to where we're going with SEL. Only the innocent. He said, could possibly think that the power elite would encourage a type of education that denounces them even more than they clear, uh, even more clearly than do all of the contradictions of their power structures. Such naivety also reveals a dangerous underestimation of the capacity and audacity of the elite. I'm reading it quickly because we've done it before. Truly liberating education can only be put into practice outside of the ordinary system. That's the key takeaway here. Truly liberating education can only be put into practice outside of the ordinary system. We need a new system. We need a whole new system. And even then with great cautiousness by those who overcame their naivety and commit themselves to authentic liberation. In other words, by cultists and only cultists. And like we said in the last lecture, Friday framed all of this out in terms of his humanistic education through conscientization. And like he said, as I quoted previously there, just to remind you, in truth, there is no humanization without liberation, just as there is no liberation without a revolutionary transformation of the class society. For in the class society, all humanization is impossible. That's where we're in the lecture on conscientization. We ran into Lukacs' wall, the problem of reproduction. Is that as long as class society, which is held up automatically, even by an oppositional class consciousness, you still reproduce class society, you still reproduce dehumanization, you're still thinking in terms of classes, you still are going to become Stalin and install an oppressive regime. That's not going to be correct. Liberation, he says, becomes concrete only when society has changed, not when its structures are simply modernized. I'm bringing this, these two quotes back up because I want you to understand that the goal with transitioning into a social-emotional learning model for conscientization, these are synonymous, by the way, transformative social-emotional learning as CASEL, uh, the primary organization selling and pushing social-emotional learning today, C-A-S-E-L, CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. Um, Transformative SEL is explicitly designed to use social and emotional techniques to raise a class consciousness. which you now know is Maoist thought reform, using psychological language instead of Maoist prison language. But what you have to understand is that the goal is that they are going to do this to have a fundamentally different society. The point of social and emotional learning is to create a fundamentally different society. Liberation becomes concrete only when society is changed, not when its structures are simply modernized. They're not modernizing the schools. They're not bringing technology into the schools. Do not believe a damn word Google tells you about this. They are trying to fundamentally change the organization and operating principles of society. They are not merely modernizing to digital technology. The digital technology is the means, not the end. The end is the radical transformation of society to a new circular economy. That your children will be conscientized not to know how to live outside of. So social and emotional learning is the new system of education that's being put into place in conjunction with and in service to the radical transformation of society that they're doing Elsewhere, a new model. Like I said, this is the circular economy, which you can even hear in the name. That's not gonna work. The second law of thermodynamics didn't stop. That's not gonna work. Entropy still exists. That's not going to work. An economy where there's no waste and all waste is fed back in as the the inputs. I mean, this is like where you see Bill Gates like coming up to this big machine and he drinks a glass of water that he's like bragging was literally poop a few hours ago. Circular water. I'm not kidding. That he did that. You can go watch the video yourself. He's like, hmm. Entities like the World Economic Forum and the United Nations understand that you have to build the new world and the people to fill it at the same time to make this work. So that's kind of the big picture theme of why social emotional learning exists. It's to facilitate the sustainable and resilient and inclusive, actually the sustainable and inclusive new world that they're going to bring into being. I did another podcast on the new Discourses platform called Sustainability of the Tyranny of the 21st Century. Sustainability is the new word that means communism. And for me, I don't even use them apart from one another anymore. Sustainability is neo-communism. We're going to have a, a whole world system that is sustainable. This is in line with the writers like Herbert Marcuse that we've been talking about all along in the 1960s, talking about how, for example, um, capitalism is intrinsically not sustainable. Because what it does is, it see, because advanced capitalism, he said, works. So what does it do? It satisfies your needs. That's what it means to work, and you have a good life. So in satisfying your needs, but it still has to make a profit, it has to make a whole new layer of new false needs. The true needs and the false needs. He talks about it a lot. So it creates a new layer of things that you want and you start to get, and those become needs too. You don't know how to live without your phone. 20 years ago you could live without your phone, no problem. Now you don't know how to live without your phone. You don't know how to get anywhere. Like you don't know what to do. You feel like you're naked because you forgot your phone somewhere. Whole new layer of needs. And when those, when capitalism steps in and satisfies those, they just become basic needs. And so it comes a a new layer of luxury goods that become the next layer of needs. But where does this tower stop? Nowhere, never. So it just creates more and more and more and more needs that people don't know how to to live without. And that's unsustainable. Eventually that's going to collapse that dovetails, I'm talking about Marcuse, but we dovetail over to the World Economic Forum in 1973, where in 1972, the year before, there was a publication put out by the Club of Rome, which you're not even supposed to really talk about, which was this weird um, bunch of MIT scientists brought in by this weird Italian uh, wealthy uh, individual who was funding them to study the possible so-called limits to growth. That's the book they published in 1972. Limits to growth. And they were convinced, by the way, In the book, written in 1972, they predicted that we would run out of metal and collapse world economy in the year 2000. That's what they said, non-renewable resources will run out and it will cause a complete break in the uh, capacity of the world to continue growing. And then we're gonna set ourselves up for a calamity where maybe six, seven billion people can live on the planet but we'll break the system so that only two or three billion can live and we're gonna end up killing billions of people by collapsing the system. So why not start getting controls on this so things don't get out of hand sooner? Because this is unsustainable growth. I bring that up because in 1973, Klaus Schwab was so moved by this crackpot report done on computer modeling in 1970 punch cards, no kidding, that said that the world was going to collapse itself by 2000, or at least definitely by 2100, uh, that he brought them to the World Economic Forum, and this existential emergency has been a significant part of their thinking ever since. That's where most of their, if you read that book, which I bothered to, uh, most of that book is about how unsustainable the current world trajectory is. And that if you break the, if you go too far and you break it, you break the entire system. And it goes from being able to support however many people to many, many fewer than that many people. We go back in time to Marcuse warning about this in One Dimensional Man in 1964. And at the end, he has this weird set of paragraphs. I don't have them here to quote for you, but he has this weird set of paragraphs where he indicates, he says, well, of course. A sustainable future requires a reduction in the future population of the world, when it was 3.9 billion in 1964. So this fear that there are too many people for a sustainable system has been along for the ride for a very long time. This environmental catastrophism that's motivating them has been around for a very long time. So changing the world to this new circular economy, managed by, we'll say, a council of stakeholders, that's a stakeholder capitalism model, where we don't we don't meet shareholder demand anymore. We, we meet stakeholder uh, analysis, like the stakeholders in COVID who said that we had to do all these things that Ron DeSantis decided not to do. And we see how that worked out. Uh, we have stakeholders like Bill Gates telling us how we're supposed to manage farmland or food. We have stakeholders like Klaus Schwab. We have these other experts that they bring as stakeholders to tell us the experts they know how we're supposed to manage all of our systems. These, this council of stakeholders, and I, I say council on purpose because the Russian word for council is Soviet are going to make all of our decisions for us and make sure that the economy is governed correctly with ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance policies that make sure that we develop the sustainable and inclusive world. This is the tyranny of the 21st century. I talk about all those things except the Club of Rome thing in that podcast that I did. It's neo-communism. It's how they, this council of stakeholders, seizes means Uh, the means of the the production of everything in society so that we can enter into what they call a circular economy, which is apparently facilitated by us eating bugs for our protein needs. That's the plan. And they want to make your children think that we have to have this world or else it's probably going to catch on fire in 12 years because AOC said it on TV and she's, uh, you know, a celebrity. She has a TikTok or something. The Chinese aren't spying on that at all. Before turning to this whole mess of, of World Economic Forum, though, I want to actually point out that even this has been criticized by critical theorists who are like, whoa, hold up. So there's a guy who comes from a critical theory perspective. His name is Ben Williamson. In 2019, he wrote a paper in the Journal of Educational Policy talking about social and emotional learning. The title of the paper is Psycho Data. Disassembling the Psychological, Economic, and Statistical Infrastructure of Social Emotional Learning. And this is a weird paper when you read it. I'm going to read a couple of quotes from it to you to tell you what social emotional learning is really about. This is a guy who's analyzing it. You get the sense that he's kind of warm to it, but he doesn't want the corporations controlling it because he's a critical theorist. And so what he says is, the political economy of psychoeconomic expertise as a section begins social emotional learning needs to be understood as part of a political economy in which the measurement of human's psychological attributes is seen as integral to economic forecasting and political management of populations. That's why they're doing SEL in the schools. Because it's integral to economic forecasting, they can make predictions about the market behaviors of your children when they have a full-blown, think like, remember back in 2016 and we all crapped our pants about Cambridge Analytica and how it used big, big data, the ocean, model to the the five attributes, what is it, openness, neuroticism, something, um, conscientiousness, empathy, I don't know, there's something, ocean. Um, the five big personality traits and where they, they did make, the, you, you took all these quizzes like which little mermaid are you and which Ninja Turtle are you? And you took all these quizzes and they were fun on Facebook and you had to share them with all your friends. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm this. Oh my gosh, I'm Michelangelo. Oh my gosh, which classical painter are you? Which, you know, whatever it is, which horse racer are you? You know, it's things nobody cares about. Which GoBot are you? If anybody remembers the GoBots from the 80s. And he took all these quizzes, but really what they were were personality profiles and they were aggregating lots and lots of data about you and using that to tailor your algorithms so that they could do political messaging to you, or marketing messaging to you. Now imagine that on steroids with really good AI. The point of social-emotional learning is that it needs to be understood as part of a political economy in which the measurements of human psychological attributes is seen as integral to economic forecasting and the political management of populations. Your children are their guinea pigs. That's why they're going through social emotional learning. He doesn't even say specific stuff within it. That's the point of social emotional learning. That's how it needs to be understood, he says. He says social emotional learning, SEL, interventions, practices, and policies are the products of a combination of techniques, measures, and practices developed by psychological, behavioral, and economics experts, stakeholders, not you as the parents. You don't know anything. Who straddle national borders and public-private sector boundaries. Now, of course, if you know anything about the World Economic Forum, by the way, they say that they're trying to form public-private partnerships. That straddle national borders and public-private sector boundaries. Huh, weird. Production of numerical accounts of students' non-cognitive capacities is a core objective of SEL advocates numerical accounts of students' non-cognitive capacities. What does that mean? Emotional capacities, for example. Referring to, quote, character education, Bull and Allen describe, quote, considerable conceptual messiness across various sites and practices of policy, work, popular culture, schooling, and so on, noting that, quote, "Perhaps perhaps it is this very messiness and incoherence that enables a productive malleability to meet a variety of agendas and interests end quote, while adding that the various interest groups all face similar difficulties in producing a scientific evidence base. What do you need? More data. Give your kids a chipped-up iPad. Similarly, in an extensive scientific review of SEL research and policy, Osher et al conclude that significant gaps in statistical measurement of SEL limit investigators and policymakers' ability to fully utilize the research findings and therefore recommend the field needs practical measures with psychometric evidence, psychometric evidence of your children. To address this gap in the psychometric evidence base, contemporary approaches to SEL therefore center on the production of novel forms of psychodata about students as statistical insights for policy influence and intervention. The turn to intensive psychometric measurement of social-emotional learning as a means to produce policy-relevant data is the core focus of this article. That's what they're doing. They then name a lot of entities that are involved in this social-emotional learning data mining project so that they can create interventions for economic forecasting and population control. In fact, they bring up those points again and again, and I'm not going to belabor it by reading a bunch of them. The paper is fairly horrifying. They name UNESCO as a huge backer of this project. That's the United Nations. They name the OECD. They name the World Bank, which is interesting to see. They name the World Economic Forum explicitly and devote a paragraph or two to them. They name as major funders the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and on the neoconservative side, the Templeton Foundation as the major contributors, supporters, and funders of this new vision. Their goal with SEL is to create models of your children through psycho data that they can use for economic forecasting, which by the way, that's gonna work in a circular fashion. They will have a perfect marketing portfolio of your children. They'll know which emotional triggers work for your children. They'll know exactly what their psychological profile looks like. They'll know exactly if they're wearing their little apps on their wearable technologies, they'll know exactly what kind of emotional responses might trigger the ideal time to hit them with an ad for a particular kind of product. And you'll have excellent ability to forecast what they might want to buy. Here's an example that's not your children. This is John Deere tractors. Did you know if you buy a John Deere tractor now, you don't own it? it? Costs like half a million dollars, but you don't own it. Do you know why you don't own it? Because the tractor runs a piece of software that has a copyright on it that John Deere owns, and you can't own their copyright. And the tractor doesn't work without the software, so they, you can't own the tractor. This has a lot of consequences like you can't fix your own tractor if you're a farmer you have to wait till they come out and type in the code that says they fixed your tractor which is great for if you have an emergency something breaks down and you've got a harvest right now real great right but it's even worse than this what this software does is it actually enables something very useful and very great for farmers all kinds of sensors built into these modern tractors they're not merely like super powerful little funny trucks that can have lots of torque or whatever and giant wheels in fact They can measure through the way that the wheels interact with the soil, the soil density. They can measure the moisture level of the soil. They can measure certain chemical compositions in the soil to the point where you can make a centimeter by centimeter grid of an entire farm in terms of what its soil quality is for the growing of various types of crops. Pretty useful if you're a farmer. You log into your John Deere account. You got your tractor you paid a lot of money for. And then here's this map of your farm and exactly where the dry areas are. You can irrigate them better. Exactly where the minerals are poor. You can go fertilize or or amplify those minerals. you know, throw out some, uh, you know, copper or whatever it is that you need to get into the soil to get the optimal growing conditions for what you're growing. Really useful, centimeter by centimeter grid. It's really small. But do you own the data that you generate with your tractor? No, you don't own the data that you generate with your tractor, John Deere does. And what do they do? They sell it to futures traders to bet against your farm because they can forecast what your yields will be. And now they're doing that, not with John Deere tractors, but with your children's psychological and emotional data that they're gathering through iPads, et cetera. That's what this is about. And it's not just so that they can market to them flawlessly. It's not just so they can make economic forecasts and plans and futures trading, guess at behaviors of the market, prevent boom and bust cycles by psychologically nudging people to act differently through marketing campaigns, et cetera. It's also for the control of people Psychologically, it could be political propaganda that gets them to act and react in ways that the regime needs them to act and react at the given moment. Perfectly tailored by AI, perfectly tailored to your child's specific psychology, yours if they could get it, but you're an adult. Captive audience in the schools, they can gather it from the children very, very easily by forcing them to be on these like canvas programs where you can't get an education any other way than being opted into these things. So what did the World Economic Forum have to say about this stuff? World Economic Forum wrote a white paper in 2016 about the education of the future. So social emotional learning. It's titled, A New Vision for Education, Fostering Social and Emotional Learning Through Technology. This is an astonishingly scary document if you can read through their typical corporate pablum. It says, to thrive in the 21st century, students need more than traditional academic learning. Did you know that? It's not, by the way, spoiler alert, they're not going to tell you that your kids need to learn how to learn because there's a highly cha- rapidly changing environment, technology's changing, new jobs coming into being, etc. So they're not going to tell you your kids need to learn how to learn. That's not what you need. They must be adept at collaboration, communication, and problem solving, which are some of the skills developed through social and emotional learning, sort of. Coupled with mastery of traditional skills, social and emotional proficiency will equip students to succeed in the swiftly evolving digital economy. Research suggests that early childhood is the critical period for fostering social and emotional learning. Children are at their most receptive to SEL and strategies targeting this stage are most likely to have a lasting impact. Guess we need that uh, pre-K education, right? But research also indicates that SEL at later stages is necessary and effective and offers opportunities to attain skills. In other words, social-emotional learning skills are teachable at all ages. So this is actually a document, though, that they don't just justify or claim to justify that we need social-emotional learning or that it creates the soft skills. They give a list of like 18 competencies. I don't want to go through that all in detail. Um, it's not just about developing these soft social emotional skills and, and resilience skills and inclusion skills, which is what they name. Focusing on equity, which they name. It's not just about that. Uh, they also want to integrate technology. That's what it says, social and emotional learning through technology. It's to be fostered that way. So they envision all kinds of high-tech applications. So they talk about the different things that, that, that are happening now using iPads, using technology in the classroom, etc. And they talk about how, you know, it's potentially possible that they could rate engagement in the same way that video games rate engagement by how often people are pushing buttons or paying attention or whatever. They talk about how the camera on the the thing could potentially do eye tracking to find out what kids are actually paying attention to in the lesson more than other things. They they talk about all these kinds of things, but then they start talking about future possible applications, and they start talking about uh, particularly AI-driven apps and wearable technologies, et cetera. So wearable technologies. I'm gonna tell you a horror story, given that we're talking about kids in education, but I have a friend, and my poor friend is getting dragged through it by me telling this story over and over again. She has one of those watches that measures everything about you. And we're fairly close friends, and so we talk about you know things that fairly close friends would be willing to talk about. And so she, rather embarrassingly to her, at the beginning of the year, though she thought it was hilarious, sent me a text message and said, my Whoop app told me the top three reasons I lost sleep in 2021. And number two was masturbating. And so, ha, 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 you know, we're all laughing. That's funny. That's cute. And I'm like, that's not funny. Oh my God, your watch knew what you were doing. Your watch was able to discern by measuring your heart rate, perspiration, et cetera, that you were touching yourself. You're, you you did not tell it you were. I asked your watch figured it out by what your physiological responses were that it could measure. And so maybe you're more suggestible after such a thing or after other things. Maybe you get a big scare and you're more susceptible to buy life insurance. Maybe you get a big uh, moment of frustration and you're more likely to buy Ben and Jerry's ice cream or something. Who knows? They can measure your emotional state and that's what this white paper talks about explicitly. They want to measure the emotional state of children in the classroom so they can target more accurately educational interventions to make it more successful and also to teach them to manage the emotions that are coming up. They're frustrated with their math lesson. Well, you can get a thing that pops up as their digital friend Or whatever and it talks them down, calms them down, gets them to refocus and then you also gather data on what part of the math lesson the kid gets stressed out about so you can figure out ways different ways to present that kind of lesson to people with that particular personality profile so that you eventually have a digital Socrates or something that's your own private tutor and you have no actual teacher. You have a algorithm controlled in some remote Uh, server room that's teaching your kids everything they need to know about the world. They never even have to look out the window. They never even look outside. They don't have to see anything with their eyes except what's on their screen, and that's how they'll be taught. This is the education of the future, and it's measuring their psychological data. And I thought, well, that's way out there. That's crazy. I know about these wearable techs and the things that they're capable of. And then I'm in Florida a couple weeks ago, and somebody says that in their county, their schools, they're already experimenting with heart math. I mentioned that the other day. Heart math, where they're strapping heart monitors onto kids, like these watches, to find out how their physiological responses go while they're going through mathematics lessons so they can pause the lesson when there's a certain amount of psychological stress being detected by the apps in the, in the devices, and they can calm everybody down and talk about how math stresses people out, and they can get the kids that are getting disengaged and do targeted interventions with them, et cetera, et cetera. Sounds pretty cool except when you realize everything that it might do. And then you look at the AI apps part. They just released a a document, um, 14 companies that are leading the way in social emotional learning, blah, 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 the the World Economic Forum did, technologies. They gave them some kind of award, you know, the 14 leaders, Uh, 12 of the 14. I remember uh, the the thrust of 13 out of the 14. I remember the 14th one, but 12 out of the 13 are all AI driven apps. One of the 14 is the Trevor Project, which I don't know why that's there. That's allegedly a suicide prevention hotline that is for gender dysphoric teens and children that they use to affirm their identities through social transition, and in fact, it has all this stuff built into it so that the kids can push a single button and delete all of the chat history with all the people that they've been chatting with so that their parents can't possibly see it or find it. The Trevor Project is one of those things you have to be very careful talking about honestly on the internet because you'll get kicked off of the internet if you talk too much about the Trevor Project. It'd be really worth some investigative people digging into that organization and finding out what's going on with it. So that's one of the 14. 12 of the 14 are AI driven digital buddies and so on digital friends so you have an AI driven app that becomes your friend that gets to know you you tell it your secrets it's just a computer it's not even a real person you tell it whatever your feelings are you're telling it all this stuff and it's recording all this data about you and that thing becomes your friend that walks you through life it's like when you play the video games these days when I played video games as a kid they were effing hard and we have the slightest idea what you're supposed to do. You get stuck in some maze. You don't know what you. I remember this game when I was a kid. This is dorky. It's called Akari Warriors. And I got to like the Boston level. There's like four levels, and I never got past level three because you get to the boss and it's some like alien face, green face monster thing behind like a desk. It's probably Klaus Schwab, and you. <laughs> You have, I never figured, I got to this point in the game like a thousand times and I never figured out what you're supposed to do to get past it and the game never tells you. Well, you play games now and you have like a little digital fairy that flies around and it's like, why don't you kick it in the feet, you know, or whatever. It tells you what you're supposed to do. You don't have to figure anything out. And so your digital app becomes your little digital assistant that's spying on you constantly and telling you how to navigate life. Hey, did you know if you're feeling stressed out, you could go do a mindfulness exercise. Let's breathe together or something like this. 12 out of the 14 things the World Economic Forum recommended are AI-driven applications of that sort. That's what's leading this. And again, that's gonna get tied in and get more and more accurate as they gather more and more psychological data. But hey, let's take a quiz. Let's take a quiz. Let's find out what kind of crystal you are. Everybody wanted to know what kind of dinosaur you might grow up to be, you know, whatever it happens to be. You feel like a boy or a girl today. Oh, you can feel like whatever you want. Let's talk about it. You know, these are the things that are winning the World Economic Forum's vision. And this is what in their white paper in 2016, they said is the future of social emotional learning. So that it can become tailored all the way down to the exact individual to to integrate into those 18 or whatever it is competencies that they see as the soft skills necessary for the future economy. Something like three or four of the 18 are like academic skills. All the rest of these social and emotional things that are going to be tied into um, having certain attitudes about how you navigate social and emotional experience. The white paper itself we just talked about it in that Williamson paper with the World Economic Forum paper turns out it mentions the same people who's paying for this who's pushing it primarily they name UNESCO as one of the primary people pushing this. And they say explicitly that it's being done in accordance with Agenda 2030 and the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. They they specifically name the World Bank as being significantly behind this, which is, they say, specifically interested in connecting data being gathered through social and emotional learning technology to fill gaps in future employment. So they're trying to map out which job you might have. So the Soviet can decide, I mean, the Council of Stakeholders can decide which job your kids are supposed to have in the new digital economy. It's a perfectly managed economy on the other side of this. They go so far as to say that social and emotional learning has to be completely systemic. It's not enough for social and emotional learning to happen at school and you go home and your, kid, your parents can deprogram you. or Maybe some kids, God forbid, are homeschooled and they don't get exposed to it. That's not enough. They even talk about a pilot program that, they, that was run in France that they hold up as an exemplar in this 20-some-odd-page document they put out where they were training nurses in social-emotional learning and in social-emotional learning education to go work with pregnant mothers so that the mothers could learn to do social-emotional learning from birth with their children. This is actually the program. You don't know about social-emotional learning yet. Social-emotional learning is in the schools. It's in all the schools. But the goal is for social-emotional learning to be in everything. Your church should have social emotional learning. Your school should have social emotional learning. Your parents and your community should have social emotional learning skills that reflect what's happening at the schools. This is the vision that they paint in these actual policy doc or or white papers, not policy documents proposal documents that they put out in, say, 2016, 2019, et cetera, about what the future of education looks like and what social-emotional learning's role in it is. That's not what you read on the CASEL website, by the way, CASEL.org, C-A-S-E-L dot O-R-G. So what does the World Economic Forum, or apparently UNESCO, or the World Bank, or the OECD, or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or any of these people, What do they want with social emotional learning? Well, we turn to, let's say, their godfather, Klaus Schwab, who we just made fun of. He's insistent, he wrote a book this year that is The Great Reset Book Two. It's its title, excuse me, is, I kid you not, The Great Narrative for a Better World. The Great Narrative. Oh, for a better future, I'm sorry, I looked it up. It's for a better future. The Great Narrative for the Better Future. They're gonna tell us the narrative so that we'll all go along with it like a bunch of idiots or we're going to be brainwashed into it through conscientizing social emotional learning. And he's insistent in this book that ESG is the key to a better future. It's what enables us to have a more, in the words he uses over and over and over again, in almost all of his documents, a more sustainable and inclusive future. He insists that the way we get there is by breaking down our resistance to a public-private partnership in order to place, to, to, to enact this from the top down. And that's going to put tremendous pressure on corporations and eventually individuals to want to comply with ESG because there's this top-down pressure being put in through a public-private partnership where we break down the barrier between the public sector and the private sector. He says this explicitly, but there's also going to be a bottom-up movement. So if you you think you can resist the top-down pressure and you don't want to go along with it and you're going to conduct business or your life the way that you want to, he says that's not going to work because your customers, your clients, your friends, your employees are going to demand it because we're going to make sure that the young people, he specifically names the millennials in Generation Z, are going to be led to need, to demand a world that doesn't cheat them, that doesn't threaten them with existential crises like pandemics, like um, climate change, and so on. So there's gonna be a bottom-up movement also demanding an ESG compliant social and political world, which will force other corporations to participate because they won't be able to get employees that nobody wants to work in a company that's on the wrong side of history they won't be able to um, keep customers because customers will start making their buying decisions and their, their their other decisions in terms of social activism and thus you create these ESG metrics that are supposed to somehow facilitate that and they say well ESG is going to predict long-term survivability while they're in while they're literally trying to create a customer base that won't buy anything else so it's all a huge scam ESG is a huge scam again ESG is environmental, social, and governance scoring for investment capital in uh, the corporate sector that's then reinforced in the public sector. Our SEC here in the United States is already trying to back up ESG compliance. That's a public-private partnership. The old word for that under Mussolini back in the day was fascism. But there's also going to be a bottom-up youth cultural revolution. and That's where you need conscientization. That's where you need thought reform. That's where you need Frarian education. That's where you need social-emotional learning. He insists that shifting the culture this way doesn't just produce a bottom-up movement. It also produces a new social contract. He, in fact, says the old social contract has to go and we have to rewrite it so that we have a social contract befitting a sustainable and inclusive future. That means we need a cultural revolution. He doesn't say those words. But it's needed and it's all but guaranteed if they're allowed to push social emotional learning through to the degree that they want to. So young people will demand, through SEL, they will come to demand ESG. They will come to demand a new society and a new culture. And so his education of the future, based in SEL, is going to make sure that young people are groomed into believing that an ESG sustainable driven world or sustainable and inclusive better future is the only possible way forward and they won't be able to live outside of that world. In other words they will have a new sensibility they will have a biological foundation for socialism driven into the level of their vital needs. To quote from Klaus, I could do this at length I'm just going to do one short part of about six paragraphs. Um, Collectively redefining the terms of our social contracts is an epical task that binds the substantial challenges of the present moments to the hopes of the future. This is Klaus Schwab's book. As Henry Kissinger reminded us, the historic challenge for leaders is to manage the crisis while building the future. Failure could set the world on fire. That's kind of happening, right? Maybe they're failing, take hope. While reflecting on the contours we think a future social contract might follow, we ignore at our peril the opinion of the younger generation who will be asked to live with it. Their adherence is decisive, and thus, to better understand what they want, we must not forget to listen. This is all the more significant because the younger generation is likely to be more radical in its demands in the refashioning of our social contract." So, the goal of social-emotional learning is to get the young people to demand a new world order. The goal of them is to build, at the public-private partnership level, the new world order that they're going to demand. In other words, they're capturing supply, that's them, and they're building demand in your children using social-emotional learning. That's what that's really about. This is what you would call, if you were a Marxist analysis or analyst, a two-headed vanguard or a two-pronged vanguard movement. Schwab's Marxism is a vanguard movement. In other words, you have an elite class that moves it along for the proletariat that won't do it itself, and it has two prongs. A top-down Lenin-style public-private partnership and a bottom-up, youth-driven, cultural revolution movement whose vital needs have been reorganized by social-emotional learning. And the purpose is to make the world ESG and sustainable development goals compliant in both the supply and demand dimensions. In other words, to build the new world, that's the supply, and find the people who will fill it, that's the demand, at the same time, and then to snap the trap into the great reset, into a new world. That's what the agenda is. The two heads of the snake, the two hearts of the beast, or whatever metaphor you want to use, are ESG and social emotional learning. If you want to end the tyranny, you bomb them both repeatedly. You target the foundations, and those are the two foundations. SEL is particularly vulnerable to a number of things. You don't have to despair. SEL is particularly vulnerable that if you find ways to legislate against data mining children, they're screwed. Doesn't take that much. You find ways to legislate against the psychological and emotional manipulation of children by non-professionals in uncontrolled, non-therapeutic environments. They can't do it. You attack SEL for what it really is. You dismantle the bottom-up part of the program. ESG is also fragile. You don't need that many corporate leaders to start flipping on this, to say what it really is, to say that it's a cartel that's running a racketeering scheme. You have state attorneys general, you have state treasurers now, West Virginia, Utah, Kentucky, Florida, speaking up already in these terms. Senators, Tom Cotton has spoken out explicitly calling it a racketeering cartel. These two things are the basis. Everybody's like, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? I can tell you not nearly enough people have realized that the foundation of their whole program is under two acronyms, ESG and SEL. Ruin either one of them, And it's like cutting one of their legs off, ruin them both. And they're going nowhere. If you want a third acronym, it's SDG, which is Sustainable Development Goals. And that's the United Nations. Sever the ties from more nations to the United Nations. This thing starts collapsing like dominoes. Get a president in the White House who says, we're pulling out of the United Nations, we're not doing it anymore. We're defunding our portion of the United Nations. You defang this snake tremendously. There are tremendous vulnerabilities in their plan. They depend on a lot of people never figuring it out. As I often say, every communist revolution has in common the same thing, that the people who were put through it figured out what was happening one day too late. You figure it out ahead of time. You bomb these foundations and you, it, it's incredibly fragile. This all can be stopped. You don't have to despair. I do want to point out though that this has a long trajectory. You know I like to do the historical thing, so let's read what Marcuse was talking about. This is what SEL is designed to facilitate. It took him a long time to get to it. This is an essay on liberation written in 1969. This is the part about the biological foundation for socialism, it's a couple of paragraphs. The advent, he says, of a free society would be characterized by the fact that the growth of well-being turns into an essentially new quality of life. This qualitative change must occur in the needs, in the infrastructure of man, itself a dimension of the infrastructure of society. Man creates society, creates man creates society by the praxis and inversion of praxis wheel of Marxism, which is like a circular human economy. The new direction, the new institutions and relationships of production must express the ascent of needs and satisfactions very different from and even antagonistic to those prevalent in the exploitative societies. What does it mean? We need to have these new sustainable institutions. Everything has to be geared toward ESG, something fundamentally different and antagonistic to what we have been doing. We don't need shareholder economy anymore. We need stakeholder capitalism instead. Such a change would constitute the instinctual basis for freedom which the long history of class society has blocked. Freedom would become the environment of an organism which is no longer capable of adapting to the competitive performances required for well-being under domination. What did I tell you? The point of critical theory is to make it so that people who have fallen into its trap cannot adapt to a competition-driven environment. They have to be in a culture of dependency. They have to be taken care of. They don't know how to live in a world that doesn't service them. It's for inducing the psychological profile of somebody who doesn't know how to be an adult, who's psychologically and emotionally broken. Of an organism which is no longer capable of tolerating the aggressiveness, brutality, and ugliness of the established way of life, the rebellion would then have taken root in the very nature, the biology of the individual. And on these new grounds, the rebels, would redefine the objectives and the strategy of the political struggle in which alone the concrete goals of liberation can be determined. It's almost like these things fit right together, like the big spoon and the little spoon. Skipping a paragraph, for the world of human freedom cannot be built by the established societies. We need a whole new system. No matter how much they may streamline and rationalize their dominion, The modernizing church isn't enough. We have to have a prophetic church. Their class structure and the perfected controls required to sustain it generate needs, satisfactions, and values which reproduce the servitude of the human existence. We have to get completely outside of the existing system. We need a whole new social contract which provides a new sensibility, a new way of thinking about the world. This voluntary servitude, voluntary in as as it is introjected into the individual. You've been brainwashed by society to think you have to live this way, which is secretly in servitude that you don't recognize. This voluntary servitude, which justifies the benevolent masters, can be broken only through a political practice which reaches the roots of containment and contentment in the infrastructure of man. You have to make people unstable. You have to destabilize them. They cannot be content. You have to break that, a political practice of methodological disengagement from and refusal of the establishment, aiming at a radical transvaluation of values. Such a practice involves a break with the familiar, the routine ways of seeing, hearing, feeling, understanding things so that the the organism may become receptive to the potential forms of a non-aggressive, non-exploitative world. This is where he says what you need is a new sensibility. People need a new reality to live in with a new rationality to understand it, with new values to be interjected into the biological foundation of who they are so that they adopt a new sensibility about how life should be. What is that new sensibility? Sustainability. We have to live in a sustainable way. Everything has to be sustainable. If it's not sustainable, it's unsustainable and that's gonna be an existential crisis. The new sensibility The tyranny of the 21st century is sustainability, a total sustainability mindset for a sustainable and inclusive future. So sustainability and inclusivity are the two pillars and that's your environmental and your social and then governance is how you're going to manage that. There's your ESG presaged here in Herbert Marcuse in 1969. How do you get these new values, this new sensibility, this new rationality into the the rebellion, the refusal into the very biological, vital needs of the people? In other words, into their psychology? How do you destabilize them to not be able to live in a world other than this? Social emotional learning, particularly transformative social emotional learning, T cell, as it's sometimes abbreviated, trans cell, uh, as it sometimes appears. So what is SEL and how does it work? Now you know what it's for, and it ain't anything good, and it ain't the well-being of your kids. What is it? I'm gonna turn first to give you an unfortunate answer from a wonderful researcher by the name of Jennifer McWilliams who digs into these things. She's one of the so-called hashtag expel SEL crusaders on the internet, brilliant researcher. And she actually traces the origins of the CASEL organization, the Collaborative for Academic and Social Emotional Learning, uh, to a project at the Fetzer Institute, which was founded by John Fetzer, who is a New Age spiritualist, in case you wondered if this was really religious. It's all focused on mindfulness and all of these new values, the transvaluation of values that you're gonna bring in. And what the Fetzer Institute was actually geared toward was figuring out ways to develop the spiritual and moral attitudes and views of people, especially children. So social emotional learning grew up within a new age religious cult environment. That's where CASEL came anyway. Social emotional learning didn't actually start there, but it got co-opted into that. Castle, by the way, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Castle is the, by far, the leading organization for social emotional learning, and no matter how Often I look at their website and poke around in their website. I feel like I just open another rabbit hole and another rabbit hole and another rabbit hole. I came here the other night and we were gonna get a drink the night before the conference. We are gonna go down and relax the day, finally, and I ended up in my room. I didn't even see the text messages because I went on the Castle website to see if I needed to flesh any of this out and I ended up in a rabbit hole of an 82-page document, another 12-page document, and all this document after document after document, the communists never sleep. They just publish and publish and publish documents and guidance, et cetera, et cetera. It's unbelievable if you go spend time on their site. It is huge. But it turns out it started as basically a new age cult for how you change values into kind of a new hippie spiritualism. And it collected up what had already kind of started in a broader social emotional learning experiment that was happening in education here and there for reasons that aren't entirely bad, as it turns out. And that's where we have to turn to the fact that the reason you're struggling, besides if you hadn't heard of it, to combat SEL, and you go and you talk to your lawmakers, or you go and talk to, I don't know, the governor of Oklahoma, and find out that his wife is implementing a SEL program in the state of Oklahoma, and they say, no, this one's good. The thing is, is there's a lot of things passing under the name of SEL, and there literally are a lot of things. They are actually different. They're actually different. The one in Oklahoma, it turns out, pushed by Governor Stitt's wife, is based in Christian principles, and it targets things in a particular way. There are many things. They're not all the Marxist transformative social-emotional learning being described in these white papers and with these projects and the psycho data and all of this. They don't have to be that way. They didn't start that way. So there's a huge bait and switch going on with social-emotional learning. There's a lot of things, in fact, They claim that there's all this data that it has like an 11 to 1 return on investment. For every dollar spent on social emotional learning, you get $11 in economic success and output uh, out of the students that graduate with a social emotional learning program. Now they don't tell you what the ratio is for people who didn't go through indoctrination or they just tell you it's an 11 to 1 investment. Maybe there's a different program that's a 21 to 1 investment, I don't know. I'm not saying that there is. But they don't tell you that. They just say there's an 11 to 1. Sounds great. Let's go. And that is one of the things that they base it on. They say, look at this meta-analysis we did in 2011. Well, it's great stuff. These outcomes, all these different good things happened. So hey, social-emotional learning is generally pretty good. Um, They don't bother to tell you, for example, that transformative social-emotional learning really came on the scene in 2016 and 17. So they're basing it on studies done before 2011 to tell you the thing they're selling you that was developed in 2017 is good, which they have no studies on. Zero studies on whether or not that works has the same name, must be the same. Who would do that? Well, a deceiver with a capital D. It's a, if you read any of these studies, do you know babies are racist? You've seen this? Like at three months old, they're racist. You ever read the study justifying that? Complete crap. Complete crap. It's the basis for so much stuff. Anti-racist baby, raise your children anti-racist, whatever it is, all these books, that's because children are racist by the time they're three months old. How do they know that? Well, they did one study where they dragged some babies and their mothers in. I guess they just dragged the mothers in with their babies. They brought them in and the mothers, something like 10 or 12 or 18, I think it's 18 of them, holding the, all white mothers, all with white babies, holding their babies, holding their babies close to their chest, and up on the big screens, there are four faces. One's white, one's East Asian, one's Middle Eastern, and one's black, and then babies being three months old do this kind of thing. And they track how long their eyes lingered on the different images on the screen, and however long it is, that's what the babies prefer. And it turned out that, as the data showed, remember they're all white babies with all white mothers, their eyes lingered longest or shortest I should say, we'll do it that way, shortest on the black faces, next shortest on the um, Middle Eastern faces, and statistically equally on the East Asian and white faces. So this means that babies prefer white, white babies prefer white faces as couldn't possibly have anything to do with looks more like mom at three months old because they didn't use anybody else. Couldn't possibly be that. This is the study upon which that entire claim is based that babies are racist, so we need an entire pre-K intervention, SEL for infants, et cetera, to overcome your racist babies. Who would do that, use just completely crap and bogus studies in order to justify gigantic policy implementation at the tune of billions and billions of dollars? Let me give you a hint. Communists. That's who would do that. That's who would lie about the evidence so that they could justify whatever it is they want to do. And in every paper I've ever read invoking that study, Every single one, they misrepresent the findings and never mention the fact that even in the paper, they're like, this is severely limited. We can't really draw any significant conclusions. They never even mention the fact that the babies gazed at the East Asian and white faces for the same amount of time. They never mention it. They prefer light-skinned faces to dark-skinned faces. The end, racist baby. (laughs) Baby probably can't even focus its eyes at three months. It probably can't see more than like shadowy blobs. Racist baby. That's the science folks. That is the science. So there are a lot of things called social emotional learning and the studies actually don't justify the thing they're selling. There's a bait and switch happening. They're telling you this is all this evidence saying this is so important and there's not even that much of it but there's a couple of like kind of groundbreaking meta analyses so therefore it's great. Here's how much you know how great it is. Quick, remake all of education at every level everywhere to the tune of billions and billions of dollars based on a very small number of poorly done studies that are misinterpreted. Who would do that? Communists would do that. And the thing is, is what they're selling now is transformative social emotional learning, primarily. Castle only sells transformative social emotional learning. Look it up, what is it about? Focus on equity. Raising critical consciousness. They tell you explicitly what it's about. That's what it's for. That's explicitly what it's for. It's for conscientization. It's not the older programs that they were looking back to that we'll talk about here in a little bit. There's another bait and switch that's actually happening here, though. This is another one. I just learned about this the other day. This is shocking. I think things are gonna start coming out about this soon. I don't wanna say it's embargoed, but we're in a room. By the time the videos come out, it will not be embargoed, but you know, don't go running with the story. Somebody's trying to work on it. But I'll tell you now. Everywhere you keep hearing college and career readiness. I keep bringing that up. College and career readiness. Imagine what would a Marxist do with a term like college and career readiness? Well, they'd just freaking redefine it, wouldn't they? To their purposes. So what makes a person college and career ready? Well, being SEL competency compliant. They list a bunch of competencies. The World Economic Forum gives like 18. Castle lists five core competencies with sub competencies within them. If you are not those you're not college and career ready, according to the new definition of what makes you college and career ready. So you're at risk of graduating, not college and career ready. So now you have every student, because every student, because they're just changing this right now, is at risk of not being college and career ready by the time they're at graduation. They're at risk. So you've redefined at risk to mean something like, I don't know, you're in a terrible neighborhood, you have a bad home, you're getting abused, blah, blah, blah. What we think of as an at-risk child that we justify you know taking steps to help them under things like Title I and so on, to all the kids. And these at-risk kids qualify the school, every at-risk child qualifies the school to claim various federal dollars in education under ESSER funding, for example, within say the CARES Act, that's some like COVID relief money, or within um, Title I monies, that are distributed to schools, every at-risk kid is worth so much money, and so now you can just redefine at-risk to mean not SEL compliant or not SEL competent, and every kid is at-risk, and because every kid is at-risk, the school gets a boatload of money, and the point of it is to implement SEL. There's a bait and switch happening there too. They're actually stealing education. It's no longer about educating your kids to be academically competent, it's about making them SEL compliant, or ESG compliant, as it were. SEL competent, they have their competencies. At the very bottom though, what is social emotional learning? It is psychological and sociological programming of children through what looks like education. It's performed primarily by teachers who've gone through a few weeks of training because they're forced to. A few of them are all into it. A lot of them think it sounds good. Many of them don't really know about all this, but they are unqualified, unlicensed, not professionals performing psychological and sociological like social work Psychological-like therapy sessions in no license, no professional qualifications, in uncontrolled, non-therapeutic spaces in front of groups of children. The people that are making them implement this, the people who think it's a good idea, belong in prison. That is psychological child abuse. They have no right, they have no qualification, they are not in a space to be engaging with that. If you actually do have at-risk or damaged children, you don't know what you're unearthing and you're not in an environment to deal with it when it comes up. Social emotional learning has literally no place. The question that we have to keep thinking about is should the schools be doing this? And the answer is no, it's not the school's job. It is not the school's job to do this. Well, how do they justify doing it? Well, because a few kids will fall through cracks if the school doesn't. And then they leap from there and yet another bait and switch. Well, a few kids are gonna fall through the cracks. There's your Mott, if you will, the Mott and Bailey. And what's the Bailey? Well, we actually need to do this for the betterment of every child. It's not actually about catching, a few kids are gonna fall through the cracks. We don't know who might fall through the cracks, so we're gonna do it to everybody. And what that turns into is, we know how to raise your child better than you do. In fact, it's better to think of these children as our children as words of the state and that the parents are the obstacle, the parents are the threat, the parents are the problem. And you see that communist attempt to sever one generation from the previous, to break apart the the institution of the family. Again, the people implementing this on purpose who know what they're doing belong in prison. I make no apologies for saying that. I do not think other than that. I have no compassion for this. If they know what they're doing and implementing this, they belong in prison. It is not their role. It is absolutely not their role. But this is how they get you, as they say. So in practice, what does social emotional learning involve? It involves data mining. They're on their little apps. They're talking to their AI guy. They're wearing a heart monitor or whatever it happens to be. That's the high-tech version. They're engaging in these dialogues, endless dialogues, filling out endless surveys, so many surveys. The surveys are required, by the way, You wanna, I said just just a few minutes ago, and also the other day, it turns out that there is a huge fragility to the whole SEL program. It is called the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA. Why are they having to collect so much damn data through all these surveys? Because ESSA requires them to report on non-academic competencies, at least in one domain, and here's Castle to fill the need immediately. Here's Panorama to come in and fill the need immediately so that they can very easily, in a very streamlined fashion, use SEL as the tool that, require, that, that required reporting can, can come back to. That's what it is you repeal ESSA or even reform ESSA, you get your legislators and Congress to think about that and do that and care about that. You get rid of ESSA, you break so much of this. That's why this is happening. There was an act in 2015. Who was president in 2015? Thanks, Obama. Data mining, and what do they do with the data? Besides, apparently, creating generative themes for the Freudian education method that we're focusing on in this workshop. We already read from Ben Williamson that they're using it to gather data to make economic forecasts and new protocols for governance of individuals. In other words, to build social credit and marketing profiles for your children. The goal that it's going to be hard to get you to have a social credit profile. Tricky. They need you to get like a a magic juice pass or something that said that you're up to date on your, your medicine or your maybe, you know, different things. Hard to get an adult. Just build it from the ground up with the kids. The profile's already there. All you have to do is snap your fingers and fire off the uh, digital ID program connected to whatever their outcomes and their portrait of a graduate or whatever it happens to be is by the time they graduate. And they have a ready-made social credit profile that all you have to do is turn it on or turn it off whenever you're ready. That's what that's about. What does a social credit score work out to? Absolute tyrannical control of the most sophisticated type that humanity has so far devised. It's not impossible to break out of, but it's very difficult to break out of, especially when you start using algorithmic advertising and propagandizing so that people don't even realize that they're trapped in this. Now we see cracks in that system where it's being tested in China and people are starting to rise up in a little bit and it's not quite containing them as well as they had hoped it would. The human spirit turns out to be pretty awesome. but it is the most sophisticated mechanism of social control possible. And we know that that, in addition to finding Freudian generative themes that they can use to radicalize your children or manipulate your children for economic and government ends, that that's one of the things that they're interested in doing. They want to use that to bring the, the, so we have the gathering of generative themes through data mining, surveying, whatever, and then they want to bring those things back as the core competencies and lesson plans. In other words, they want to, Educate your children on social and emotional engagement issues from within those themes, which should sound an awful lot like Frary's codification decodification program. So we got data mine for generative themes, Use those to model the necessary social and emotional learning objectives to correct the social and emotional learning uh, problems that they discover in the children, to present those through codification, decodification. In other words, to guide them to the correct, the so-called correct answers about social and emotional questions that they're being presented with, often in age-appropriate age-inappropriate uh, fashions. And then you do this in order to have psychologically and social work style, sociologically infused instruction that explores those themes. That's the actual process of social emotional learning. We've already seen that that basically boils down to thought reform. So I come back again to the lingering question, the looming question behind all of this. Is it a school's role to do this? And the answer should be unambiguously no. Parental rights legislation that says that it is not the school's role to do any of this is needed. The idea of such expertise that our teachers and school administrators and wonderful Department of Education employees know better than parents has to go. They don't. The primary stakeholder in any child's life is their parent. Period. Not a school administrator, even when the kids are falling through the cracks. And what you could do as an alternative, just like there's an alternative to this whole environmental crisis that there's nothing to do about so we all have to starve and have, en- have electric cars that we can't afford, just like there's this thing called nuclear power we're not allowed to talk about. You know, there's like black identities and green identities, Well, there, or, sorry, black identities and red identities, well there's green energy and black energy, right? And nuclear is oddly considered a black energy. Well, just like the solution, there's a solution here. You can, it turns out, target individual kids who are falling through the cracks and deal with them in separate, situations, programs, or whatever it happens to be. Whether it's a run by the state, that's an open question about how we want to debate these things and how we're going to solve those problems. But you don't have to blanket, you don't have to carpet bomb all the kids with it. There's some other agenda at play. It makes no sense to do that. It makes absolutely no sense to do that. So should we be doing this for any kids? The at-risk kids? Maybe, but the question is how? Should we be doing it for all kids? Definitely not. It's not their job. It's not their role. They're not qualified. They shouldn't be doing it. It should be illegal, as a matter of fact. I keep saying prison. But the way they got there is by changing the definition of at risk, they're at risk because of COVID, they're at risk because of learning loss, they're at risk because they're not going to be socially and emotionally competent by the time they graduate, they're at risk of not being college and career ready, therefore, and then that ties into the rivers of federal money. So another huge vulnerability here is that you cut off the access to federal money that has any string tied to it. Not just any federal money. I mean, if you listen to, say, Betsy DeVos, for example, she has this whole concept. Former Department, or former, former Secretary of Education under Trump, she has this whole idea that maybe, maybe the federal DOE would be best suited to just deliver block grants. Right? We figure out an apportioning scheme by population or something. The federal government gives state departments of education money and has no say whatsoever in what the states do with it. That's a possibility. You cut that federal money string tying right off. You cut the ties to the uh, United Nations unless a state wants to go straight up with the United Nations from the federal level. That's a very powerful tool. There are things that can be done here. Um, That's a, a definite option that people should be looking at. Cutting all of those strings at that level is a definite thing that we should be looking at. Those strings are the problem. Those strings are the threat. Looking at the teachers' unions, that's a huge thing. Those are gigantic national organizations, but it turns out they are also not national organizations. They're tied into something virtually no American has heard of called Education International, which is a (laughs) international-ist teachers' union that's tied into all the United Nations crap. And they're the ones creating the pipelines down into the teachers' unions to make sure the teachers' unions funnel it all into the schools. Severing those ties weakens this entire program. And we could actually rescue the public schools. I think that the public schools will actually be, everybody wants to go into the market logic. I think the public schools are easier to rescue than the private schools. Private schools can tell you to basically go F yourself and get out of the school and give you no service whatsoever. You show up at a public school and start complaining, somebody at least has to pretend to listen. Just happened. I was talking with my congressman and their other congressman present and uh, I was saying something and he kinda got distracted for a minute and they pointed at him and they said, hey listen, he's your constituent. You have to listen to everything he says. That's the idea at least. Maybe it doesn't always go in practice, but there's leverage there. We should be thinking about that. So let's talk about the weird history of SEL because it is weird. I mean, I've obviously mentioned this weird uh, spiritual New Age, Fetzer Institute thing, but it actually started before that. Guess what year social emotional learning started? Any guesses? 1968. A lot of things happened in 1968. It's so weird, you just keep running into this. The first experiment in social and emotional learning was done by a man named Dr. James Comer, who was at Yale. He was dealing with, I think it was New Haven, Connecticut schools. There were two particular, now let me give you the context before I continue. You have to appreciate that 1968 was a year where we're having roiling racial tensions in the country. 1968 is the year Martin Luther King Jr. was shot, assassinated. This is not like 1995 in terms of race relations. This is not like 2020, 2019 in terms of race relations in this country. This was a very racially uh, tumultuous year. The Civil Rights Acts were still brand new. There were still massive disparities in terms of schools, in terms of things that correlated overwhelmingly tightly, probably for causal reasons, with race. And he's looking at two schools that were literally 99% black in New Haven, Connecticut that were in abysmal situations. And he implemented this new program to see if he could help those schools that were in tremendous risk, tremendous, needed tremendous help. And uh, it's described as, I read an article, in inter- I can't find much written by James Comer actually, but I found um, some, some you know profiles written about him. And it was described this way in one, Dr. Comer has been studying the impact of social emotional development on students in schools since the 1960s. As the Maurice Falk Professor of Child Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine, His work focuses on child development in inner city schools and the idea of educating the whole child. The Comer School Development Program was founded in 1968 and continues to support schools promoting collaboration amongst community stakeholders and clearing pathways to higher education. So in some sense, this is where SEL started. These two inner city schools in New Haven, Connecticut that were in bad shape in a very racially tense year in very different social and political circumstances than we recognize today and what happened was he used very specific very specific targeted engagement and involvement in those two schools and within particular you know classrooms and individuals within those schools kind of a very stand by me looking kind of thing and he took this whole child approach what did that mean for Comer that meant well you can't just look at his school life that student you have to look at well what's going on at home how do we help fill in for that is he got, you know, Is what's going on with how he's reacting to what's happening in the country around him, with this huge race tension. 99% black school, huge racial year, Martin Luther King being assassinated. This is not a good year. There's obviously some stress going on. So let's look at the whole situation the kid's in. This doesn't actually, fall out of making sense. And what he did was he implemented this, looking at the whole child, mostly school life, home life approach, and said, what kind of interventions can the school get involved in to kind of patch up the holes here? I don't actually suspect that James Comer was a bad guy. I think he was in, his heart and head were probably in the right place. I don't know, maybe he's a communist. I couldn't find any, any proof. I looked, I couldn't find any proof. He said, this is Comer himself, in one of the interviews they did with him in a profile, I began to speculate that the contrast between a child's experiences at home and those in school deeply affects the child's psychosocial development and that this in turn shapes academic achievement. The contrast would be particularly sharp for poor minority children from families outside of the mainstream. So you have a little bit of this kind of identity politics thinking, but again, we're in 1968. There's plenty of reasons to accept that that's relevant, very relevant might be slightly relevant now, very relevant in 1968. Plenty of reason to believe that. And it turns out that it was fairly successful. These schools in like five years had a complete turnaround, went from barely graduating any, anybody to graduating almost everybody. Most of the kids ended up going off to college. Completely successful. It's literally like the Stand By Me story all over again. In fact, I don't know if that movie's based on the story or something similar to it. And so this becomes very interesting. Maybe there is something to this. Maybe it matters, but what you see though is that he was looking at a very specific circumstance and intervening where a specific circumstance was identifiable and using targeted interventions on individual students and individual classrooms in individual circumstances where it's necessary. He wasn't carpet bombing the education system of Connecticut. He was saying, so there's a problem specifically here, let's intervene and see what we can do about it, and it had positive effects. And what the research, if you look at the so-called 200 or whatever it is, studies that were in the 2011 metadata or meta-analysis, if you look at what those studies show in general is that it is wildly dependent on context of the classroom, context of the individual, excitement and engagement of the students and the uh, teachers as to whether or not social emotional learning produces improvement outcomes. And in particular, it only seems to really work in at-risk situations which is why redefining at risk to be everybody is a big mistake. If I was doing a statistics class, I would talk to you about type one and type two errors. I do this a lot, false positives and false negatives. And if you try to, if you focus only on the harms of one type of error and work and spend all your resources to eliminate one type of error, a lot of times what happens is you generate a whole lot of the other type of error. Why don't we do universal cancer screening to cure cancer? turns out your body don't mean to alarm anybody is generating cancers all the time but your immune system is killing them all the time. You would go for your twice yearly screening, you'd find all kinds of cancers that you don't actually need to worry about that would never become a problem and you're gonna get put on chemo for them which is gonna make lots of people sick. It's not appropriate. This is a basic thing that we actually cover when we teach statistics, which I've taught so I can say that it's a thing we actually cover. Turns out, why don't we do universal screening for diseases like AIDS or something like that or whatever, or COVID. Oh wait, we did. Why don't you do that? Because it turns out the false positive rate on those tests isn't zero. So what you end up doing is telling, if you do universal screening, 330 million Americans, if you have a 5% false positive rate, you can do the multiplication. Just divide 330 million by 20 in your head, you're there. Whatever that number is. In math math speak, we're there. 330, 330 million divided by 20, done. Okay, that's a number. It's a rational number. You're gonna tell that many people they have AIDS when they don't. Imagine what that's going to do to them. So by focusing on one type of problem to the complete, to, to, to complete elimination of that problem, you create a massive amount of externalities of the other types of problems. And so it's generally recommended that it's a terrible idea. Same thing here. Carpet bombing the schools with social emotional learning when it has some positive benefit, in particular at-risk situations, is a terrible idea. But it also turns out to be a very lucrative grift. Consultants, industries, many billions of dollars will pour into this space. That 2016 white paper from the World Economic Forum is advising tech companies, P.S. guys, there's a river of gold in building the applications that you're going to be able to sell to schools which they will be mandated by law to buy. Huge taxpayer grift. You want money, money, money? There it is. There's a huge perverse incentive to getting this wrong in certain cases, and this is one of them. And we come back again to the key question. Even if this is a good idea, is it the school's job? We have to keep asking that question. Is it the state's job? When is it the state's job, and when isn't it the state's job to intervene in these actually tragic cases or beyond. It turns out though this pilot study by James Comer inspired the people that went on to form CASTLE, I guess at the Fetzer Institute. CASTLE actually forms though quite a lot later, not in 1970 or something like that, but in 1994 also at Yale, actually in the Comer Department. It actually gets its mainstreaming a year later and after a 1995 book that has now been widely debunked, Daniel Goldman's book Emotional Intelligence. Oh my gosh, there's so many different kinds of intelligence. There are like 11, was it Howard Gardner or somebody that had the 11 multiple intelligences? There's emotional intelligence. Oh, my gosh, well, we need to foster emotional intelligence so we'll have a more inclusive and, and fair and just world. And wow, we have a social emotional learning program we've been experimenting with and that Castle is now kind of codified uh, and started to, to play with in 1994, just the year before. And the money wheel starts turning. Massive best-selling book, drives a fad, fad blows up. Now that's the answer to all the problems. This leads us into a person who I've been told we're not allowed to talk about, also starting big in 1994. Her name is Linda Darling Hammond, with a hyphen. Write her name down if you want. We're not supposed to talk about her, I've been told. Uh, because she's an AEI fellow or something like that? I don't know. Turns out corruption's even on your side. Linda Darling Hammond got in bed with Castle pretty early on, actually. Um, but what she's always been focused on is social-emotional learning and equity focuses in education all the way through her entire professional career. Now she was tapped in 2008 by Obama's education policy transition team and facilitated that but was not put into positions of power by Obama and the Obama administration because they brought in Arnie Duncan with Common Core instead. And according to what I read about this, Um, they're still mad. Imagine how much better the world could have been if in 2008 we had the equity-focused SEL lady put in place instead of the Common Core guy. Um, She's also been tapped uh, as part of Biden's education transition team in 2020. So she's a Democratic Party darling of education. Like I said, her focus is equity and SEL, and it always has been. She was recommended to the Obama administration by one Bill Ayers. Of the Weatherman Underground, a literal frickin' terrorist who, one of those 60 radical, 60s radicals we talked about last night, where did they go after they left the streets? Not to yuppiedom, not to the religious cults, to the classroom. Bill Ayers, Weatherman Underground, became an education activist in the 1970s and has been ever since. And it was on his recommendation that the Obama administration said, This lady's great, let's put her on the transition team a literal terrorist, left-wing Marxist terrorist at that. In 2006, Linda Darling-Hammond was named one of the 10 most influential people in education, which is funny that you've probably never heard her name. In the administrations where she did get to work, including within the CASEL program, she pushed hard for Department of Education school accountability plans. That's where we come back to ESSA in the Every Student uh, Succeeds Act, which is a gigantic school accountability plan. The goal was, how can we gather lots more data on the schools to make sure they're doing what we want from the federal government level? And we have this woman, Linda Darling-Hammond, who's an SEL equity advocate, pushing it from the start. Her main agendas were to work SEL in as a means for this accountability plan, and that's what SEL has become. It has become one of the main ways that they can do non-academic accountability assessments and even wonderfully free states like Florida require non-academic accountability assessments, usually in terms of social and emotional outcomes of students. She's also a big proponent of this other nightmare in the schools called restorative justice. Restorative justice means your classroom is a nightmare. Restorative justice means nobody gets suspended, nobody gets in trouble, and when somebody does get in trouble, you don't document it, so there's no paper trail. I strongly recommend, if you can find time, to pick up Max Eden's book on restorative justice called How Meadow Died. It's about the Parkland shooting in Florida. Social, uh, no, sorry, I don't wanna blame social emotional learning. I wanna blame restorative justice in the inclusive classroom. The kid involved, I'm not gonna do a hatchet job on Max's work, but the kid involved was an obvious mental illness case, they kept getting put back in the class because that's inclusive. You can't exclude disabled students and mental illness, including literally psych- literally psychopathy and saying you want to drown like in your, co- your, your fellow students' blood, that you want to murder them, doesn't matter. You've got to put them back mainstream in the classroom to be a Title I inclusive classroom. That's the inclusive classroom. Remember, we're having a sustainable and inclusive world. Secondly, restorative justice. A couple of years before the shooting, they stopped recording any of his incidents of uh, violence or threats or any of the other crazy stuff he was doing. And at the moment when the shooting was taking place in that school, virtually every kid, according to Max's reporting, virtually every kid in the school knew exactly who was doing it and knew that they had seen something, they had said something, and the administrators had done nothing, and the primary reasons that they did nothing were restorative justice and inclusive classroom. Restorative justice, what it actually means is that you're not gonna use um, retributive, I don't know how to say that word, justice. You're not gonna punish kids. You're gonna put them in like social worker happy circles and talk it out. The kid that that assaulted, you punch a kid, and instead of like, suspending the kid that punched him or filing an assault charge against him. Nope, you put the kid that punched him and the kid that he punched, sit them down from each other and have them talk about their feelings together with a social worker mediating. Because you got to cut off the school-to-prison pipeline, which maybe doesn't even exist. Whether or not it exists is a question we could analyze, we could look into. But you have to cut that off because there's huge racial equity disparities in the so-called school to prison pipeline, which may or may not even exist. So she's a huge proponent of restorative justice. Basically, everything that's breaking our schools, SEL, restorative justice, inclusive classroom, equity focus, Linda Darling-Hammond is behind it. She was a huge fan with that accountability plan, school accountability plan, not just for SEL and restorative justice, of student surveys. She is kind of the queen of make the the students take surveys. Why are your kids taking surveys all the time? Primarily Linda Darling-Hammond. That's why named one of the 10 most influential people in education in 2006, recommended by a literal Marxist terrorist and installed by the Obama administration. What a fun story. Her goal is actually to make SEL systemic. That's not just the theft of education, which it is, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It is actually, like I said, all the way down to teaching mothers to do SEL at birth, teaching communities to, to reflect SEL back at the students. As Linda Darling-Hammond said, it's about creating a framework for teachers' pedagogy so they are using their regular class time to implement SEL's values. That's what her vision is. Remember I said theft of education? It's about creating, this is Linda Darling-Hammond herself, it's about creating a framework for teachers' pedagogy so they are using their regular class time to implement SEL values. Theft of education. We're not going to teach your kids math, reading, et cetera. We're going to teach them social and emotional values for a sustainable and inclusive world. And Linda Darling Hammond, for those of you who like names, is a name. After 2015 16, SEL starts taking a very deliberate trajectory. What a coincidence, right after ESSA passes. Starts taking a very deliberate trajectory. Now they have. Federal legislation, making it so that this accountability plan is in place, schools have to survey, schools have to send this data in, and all of a sudden, SEL is out, trans-SEL is in. Transformative SEL, with a deliberate attempt to conscientize into critical consciousness, is in. That's a bait and switch. You've been tricked. You've been lied to so they could bring in Marxist conscientization under the banner of something that looks great, with spotty data to support it. Like James Comer's cases are special, they're specific. Maybe they work in certain cases, maybe they don't. We don't have the data to know what kinds of cases they work in and which kinds of cases they don't. We know that teacher engagement, teacher interest, and specific need are relevant. We also know that targeting individuals as opposed to targeting classrooms or as opposed to targeting a system, the entire educational curriculum across the board is, uh, is a matter of difference that can make a difference in what might be the outcomes. The data support older models of SEL, not the current implementation of transformative SEL. But Castle rules the roost now, and they push transformative SEL and only transformative SEL. And let me remind you, transformative means Marxist. It means transforming the world to its humanist goal, as Marx viewed humanism. What does Castle say about this? C-A-S-E-L, Collaborative for Academic, Social and Emotional Learning. Social and emotional learning, they say, SEL is an integral part of education and human development. Is it the school's job to do human development? SEL is the process through which all young people and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills, and attitudes to develop healthy identities, manage emotions, and achieve personal and collective goals. Feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain supportive relationships, and make responsible and caring decisions. What a good sales pitch. Is it the school's job to do that? SEL advances educational equity and excellence through authentic school family community partnerships to establish learning environments and experiences that feature trusting and collaborative relationships, rigorous and meaningful curriculum and instruction and ongoing evaluation. They're spying on your kids. SEL can help address various forms of inequity, and empower young people and adults to co-create thriving schools and contribute to safe, healthy, and just communities. What's a just community? Let's pause on that. Remember when I said that socialism is an administered economy where they redistribute shares and they redistribute shares so that citizens or shareholders are made more equal? And I said that the Socialism is that, and that's the same thing as equity. And if you run, in Marxist theory, if you run socialism long enough, it becomes something that people need and can't live without, and it becomes communism where you don't need a state to administer it anymore because it becomes automatic. Well, imagine if you took equity and ran it for a long time until it just becomes automatic. Aha, that's justice. That's social justice. Social justice equals neo-communism. It doesn't have to equal that, but that's what it equals in the common parlance where you're extending social justice theory out of social equity theory which is just a rebranding of socialism, according to the Marxist vision that socialism will become spontaneous and become communism. Equity will become spontaneous and finally become justice. So we're gonna have just communities when equity is their automatic state. As a matter of fact, Castle says that social emotional learning must be leveraged to promote equity and excellence. It must be leveraged to promote equity before excellence, as a matter of fact. They say social-emotional learning can be a powerful lever for creating caring, just, inclusive, and healthy communities that support all individuals in reaching their fullest potential. Systemic implementation of SEL both fosters and depends upon an equitable learning environment. Fosters and depends upon, this circular, where all students and adults feel respected, valued, and affirmed in their individual interests, talents, social identities, cultural values and backgrounds. While SEL alone will not solve long-standing and deep-seated inequities in the education system, it can help schools promote understanding, examine biases, reflect on and address the impact of racism, build cross-cultural relationships and cultivate adult and student practices that close opportunity gaps and create a more inclusive school community. In doing so, schools can promote high-quality educational opportunities and outcomes for all students, Irrespective of race, socio status, gender, sexual orientation, and other differences, this requires that SEL is implemented with an explicit goal of promoting educational equity. The point of social-emotional learning is to conscientize students while implementing or promoting socialism on all levels of stratification, not just economic class, but also race, what are they? Race, socioeconomic status, gender, sexual orientation, and other differences. Castle organizes this according to their five competencies, the so-called CASEL Five. These are the soft skills, the emotional intelligence skills that they want education to raise. Self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, social awareness and relationship skills, all things that sound great until you realize that self-awareness might include self-awareness of what your gender is changing to be every day. Self-management might be teaching you the skill of resilience as it's been redefined, which means when they cram the DEI lesson on you, you don't throw a fit. That would be white fragility. You don't reject the lesson. You have to be resilient in face of your brainwashing. Self-management, sit still and take your brainwashing. Responsible decision-making, according to whose definition of responsible? Social awareness, well you just know that's critical social justice Marxist nonsense. You have to be aware of the power structures in society, that's the whole freaking point of all of the conscientization process. And then relationship skills, like Robin DiAngelo teaches, shut up and listen, that's a relationship skill. You can't have an authentic cross-racial relationship by knowing one another as individuals. You have to engage the racial difference, or it's not authentic. That's what she says in her books. So what's this all about? Thought reform. Cultural revolution with a bottom-up demand vanguard for ESG and sustainable development goals or a sustainable and inclusive future. It works through data mining, not just for thought reform, but also for social credit profiling. Like I said, that's for... Managing profit and government control, as we saw Ben Williamson explain explicitly. The point of it is to build a new world and to staff the new world or a new culture to live in the new world simultaneously. So the people who are doing this have to be stopped and put in prison. They don't get to steal our society. They don't get to steal our children from us without facing, what's their other favorite word? Accountability. I want to make a point before I go on with the bait-and-switch. Somehow I missed it in my, my notes, so I have to go back. I apologize. I'm usually so much more organized. I lost this. You've got to draw a grid. I, maybe I accidentally deleted it. Watch out. When I said there's a lot of forms of social-emotional learning, this is what you got to understand. I want you, if you have your notes in front of you, you're not doing notes, just bear with me and use your, use your imagination skills. I want you to make a three-by-three three grid. And on one axis, I want you to, to list that there are three different types of social emotional learning. This should have gone way earlier. I was wondering where did I put that? Okay, sorry. There are three forms of social emotional learning in terms of how you target it. You can target it at targeted individual or targeted interventions. You find a kid that's literally got at-risk problems and you set him aside and say with a counselor or whatever and you do social emotional learning with him to get him up to speed. So personal targeted at-risk kids. That's individualist in some sense. Then you have where you're bringing it into the curriculum, okay? So you can make this your horizontal grid or whatever, I don't care. What you have is bringing it into the curriculum. You have an entire class dedicated to social emotional learning. And every day you have to have social emotional learning class like you have reading class. Every day you have social emotional learning class like it's art class. But now you're having a class on your emotions. That's a second level. And then there's what Linda Darling-Hammond promotes, which is systemic. Every class, every subject, football coaching, everything has social-emotional learning principles woven into it. In fact, they replace the regular academic instruction. Mathematics lesson becomes a mediator for a social-emotional learning lesson. That's what Frede would tell us. So, individual or targeted to curricular to systemic, the entire school is organized around it in every subject at all times. Three levels of implementation, okay? Now that's your horizontal, if you did it horizontal. Your vertical axis on your three by three grid is three different models of social-emotional learning that have been developed. So there are nine products passing as social-emotional learning. The first one is a personal responsibility model. Everything before at least the mid-2000s was like 2000 aughts or whatever, was personal responsibility. You intervene with the at-risk kid or class, you sit them down, so James Comer would have had both curricular and he would have had uh, individual, and you sit down and you, with the kid or the class, whichever one of those two things that happens to be, those two levels, and you say, look, the point is you have to take responsibility for your emotional state. You gotta take personal responsibility for how you feel. And this is how they're gonna sell your social-emotional learning. You gotta take responsibility for yourself, your emotions, and learn how to manage them, et cetera. It's gonna make your life better. This is something, in fact, I don't know if the school's, it's the school's job to do, but isn't bad at all. This is actually good. Where, where it takes place is a, is a different question, but that's actually good. Teaching people to take responsibility for their emotional state and not to blame it on everybody else is great. That's the personal responsibility model. That's level one. Level two, which they transitioned to around about 15 years ago, is called a civic participatory model. The participatory model. So this, what it starts to include is that you have classes that are dedicated to something like social and emotional learning, but they also go out and get engaged civically. They go do activist projects. This is a higher level. Now they're getting involved in civic stuff. It's not about managing your emotions anymore. It's not about dealing with your problems. It's about let's go clean up your community. Let's go do a community project from the school. And then the third level Is transformative SEL which is explicitly to raise critical consciousness. So now you have a nine by nine grid or sorry three by three grid for a nine square grid and up in the far corner of doom you have systemically implemented transformative SEL which is what Castle is pushing into all your schools. This is the nightmare. Down here on the other corner way down in the safe corner you have targeted interventions with at-risk kids that are being done by teaching them personal responsibility skills and emotional management skills, ideally by a qualified professional in a therapeutic space, which could be super good. So there's your sales pitch. There's your problem. Sell the dream, service the nightmare. That's what's happening. That's the bait and switch that's happening. They're pointing to personal responsibility models implemented either at the individual or curricular levels and saying look how good and valuable this is. How could you be against this? And what they're selling you is raise critical consciousness by hijacking every single subject to do social emotional learning instead of doing educational content. And that's the theft of education. And we saw why they're doing it. The gigantic globalist machine that we're all kind of afraid of as a plan for your children and the world they're going to live in. They're transforming the world for them to live in a different world, but they need them to be ready to live in that different world right out from under you. So they're using social emotional learning to gather the data to build that world. They're they're to gather the data to control and market to the consumers and citizens of the future, global citizens of the future as a matter of fact, so that they can implement an entirely new world order. That's what social emotional learning is really about and there are I don't know how the whole grid fills out I tried to fill it out in my notes in which I apparently lost somehow sorry old people problems I tried to figure out what all nine of the things would be and I don't know that there are nine specific different types of programs maybe we could identify them happening maybe you can imagine what they look like but definitely you have this clear vision that they're selling off of personal responsibility based programs where they're intervening with individuals in targeted ways or with curriculum in targeted schools like James Comer may have been doing. You can even imagine that occasionally with that whole model, that whole issue model, that whole school, whole community so-called model, you might even imagine that what's going on is that they're um, intervening with some civic engagement. Let's go work at the neighborhood. Let's go make community connections. Let's get your kids to know the police. Let's get you you know, in friendly relations, these kinds of things. Fine, whatever, but transformative SEL implemented in a systemic way is a theft of education for Marxist goals. I wonder if I have my list down here at the bottom. So what do we do about this mess? What do we do about this mess? I'll kind of wrap up quickly, I've kind of touched on it as we go. The only way we can fight this problem in education, the Marxification of education, the theft of education, whichever thing we want to call it, is to know what it looks like and how it's done. We have to know the magic trick of how they're stealing education so we can call it out specifically and make them stop doing that. So we can make good legislation, so we can make good law, so we can do that through good lawsuits, smart lawsuits, strategic lawsuits, instead of random lawsuits thrown at the state, many of which will be decided by judges that will build precedent against ending this problem. We have to know what it looks like and how it works. We have to learn to spot the generative themes approach so that they can use the generative themes to hijack education to do something like social emotional learning and start to draw lines around what they're actually doing to find ways to start to prohibit what they're actually doing as opposed to something we're vague about and can't define. We need to learn to spot, and that was the goal, the primary goal of this workshop, was to learn to spot critical pedagogy concepts, themes, and practices, in particular, the hijacking of education to turn it into conscientization. Are they thought reforming your kids? Well, what does thought reform look like? Maybe you should know what thought reform looks like, and then you can realize if they're doing that to your kids, or even if they're doing it to you at work through DEI training. When we understand what this looks like, we can draw lines around them and challenge them legally and through policy, but in particular, as I keep bringing up, we actually have the opportunity to throw down an Establishment Clause violation that they're implementing a specific concept of man in the world that is a system of belief and practice that gives rise to identifiable duties of conscience, which is a direct violation of the uh, existing jurisprudence for Establishment Clause First Amendment law as to whether or not something constitutes a state-endorsed religion. The most important thing that you need, we need to do to take care of this problem, and I should have said it first, honestly, is you have to protect your kids. You have to protect your kids. How you're going to protect your kids is up to you, but you have to figure that out. You have to do it, and you have to know that it needs to be done. The question I wanted you to sit with is if you knew you were sending your children to a thought reform re, uh, re-education or indoctrination camp, a brainwashing camp for 30 to 35 hours a week, a communist re-education camp. What would you do differently? You need to sit with that question, think about it, and start taking the action to protect your kids from what they want to do to them, what they are doing to them. We're not part, it's not like, oh, here's the stages of conscientization that they're going to run us through. We're somewhere, depending on the locality and the kids, somewhere between stage three and eight for virtually all of them. The kids screaming at the sky when the wrong person gets elected is at stage eight. They're at utopian consciousness, to scream at the world until it changes and becomes perfect. Now, I'm going to get controversial. Everybody wants this to be about school choice. They want the market to solve the problem. I sympathize. Care is needed. I'm not saying that's the wrong answer. I'm saying proceed with caution. Not red light, yellow light. Think it through. Order of operations, so to speak, matters. As a math teacher, you have to do things in the right order. We have to be aware of how government strings are going to tie to voucher money student uh, savings accounts or educational savings accounts money, we've got to pay attention to how they're going to try to government strings. We've got to cut the strings, especially from the federal government, state governments too, but especially the federal government. We've got to watch how the accountability pipeline that Linda Darling-Hammond installed actually works. We need to um, think about the accreditation and licensure pipelines. If all you're pumping out is Marxists as teachers, who's going to fill the school that's in your choice school? Marxists, if all of the educational technology is SEL compliant Googleware, what are you gonna give them to learn with? If the only way they can get textbooks is through something like Pearson that's been captured, what are you gonna teach them from? The accountability, the accreditation, et cetera, those pipelines have to be cleaned up as well. But at the same time, it's easy to look at government and say these things and say government's all the problem, but you have to realize that there are two major threats to freedom, at least in addition to government authority there is corporate monopoly these are major threats to freedom and what we don't want to end up with is basically the amazon.com of schools by the way they're buying hospitals now amazon's getting into healthcare why wouldn't they get into education so you pay your taxes you're the state takes 10 or 15%, gives you your money back so you can spend it on whatever school you want and the only school available is the one Amazon's giving you so that Amazon can educate your kids the way that Amazon wants them educated. I'm not naming Amazon, I don't know that I'm using it as an example, a potential example, a hypothetical example. You get the idea. You don't want that. You don't want some corporate franchise model that basically all the schools are owned by one or two megacorps that are completely unaccountable to you that are pushing, guess what agenda they're gonna push? Right now it's gonna be ESG, and if the goons in charge figure out a new scam, it's gonna be that scam. You're not gonna get around this problem by automatically creating choice if they're ready to deploy a corporate monopoly that's going to seize all of education, data mine your kids and sell that data right out from under you as part of their cost savings model or their profit model so that they can undercut every school including the public school. So you pay your taxes, the government gives you 90% of your taxes back, you can spend it on schools, but because they're selling your kids' data, it actually only costs half as much as the public school, so you get to pocket 40% of what you paid in taxes. Your kids get a school that's super cheap, it's outside of the norm. They can be, they can bill it as being um, anti-woke or whatever the political winds of the day say it is, but they're sure as heck going to be sustainable development goals, ESG compliant on some level, and they surely are going to be data mining your children. And you are not getting around this problem that way. You're just maybe delaying it a little bit while walking into a trap you can't get out of because what they can't do through the government front door they will do through the corporate back door that is the mean the means of our times that is the problem that we have not figured out how to solve in the 21st century yet these are all captured or capturable markets at present so school choice depends on there being a free market so we have to figure out how to make, free, make sure the markets are going to be free and protected to be free with an education before we start making a gigantic slush fund that's mandated by law that you pay your money into that corporations walk away with $750 billion a year of your taxpayer money while you think that you're getting a good deal. You don't get the benefits of choice when there's no real choice. So you have to make sure there's choice then we push for school choice, then we use the market to leverage all of these things to make a good and fair and awesome education. But that means protections from government accountability and it means protections from corporate monopoly. And if you're not thinking in terms of both of those, you're not ready to talk about school choice. You gotta think for a minute, let's just be real controversial. How much money is the school choice lobby spending and how much money have they been spending for how long? And do you not think they expect a payoff in terms of the 750, billion dollars of federally mandated tax money that gets spent in education every year in this country. It's a big slice of pie. What we have to do more practically, like I said, we have to go after ESG. This is an education workshop. We have to go after SEL with everything we've got. SEL has to be ended. The data mining of children has to be ended. We have to lobby to have it understood. Our lawmakers need to understand what it is. Our uh, executives, our attorneys need to know what it is. It has to be understood. It has to be limited, prohibited, banned, removed, restricted. This is a nightmare. We have to end data mining operations on children in schools with their education apps. That pulls the big plug out of their plans. It's key. We have to put a firm line, not in sand but in concrete, that you will not practice psychology without a license on my child in school in an un- non-therapeutic, unlicensed, or un- un- unsecure environment. You're not going to do it, and you have to go after the funding schemes or get people with power to start cutting the funding schemes and the strings from them. To do that, you have to research how they're funded or follow people who research how they're funded. There are many people around the country that are already gathering these kinds of resources and, and writing about them and. Uh, making databases of them so that you can lobby and fight against how this money is being used to corrupt and steal education. You need to tell your lawmakers to go after ESA. They don't know. They don't even know that it exists in a lot of cases. They need to, they don't know. Do not expect your lawmakers to have the slightest idea what they're dealing with. Tell them about ESA. find out how it works first so you have a nice 10 minute or five minute presentation you can give them a sense of what this is. Get them on board. Things like this have to be done. I'm not a policy guy, so I have to do more homework on this. You guys need to do homework on this too. Hopefully I can go back to reading my stupid books and you guys can do a lot of the policy legwork that I don't know how to do. But in general, we need to be pushing for education to be more and more local, with the control at the local level. However the management of money is, to just cut the strings, the bigger it is, the less strings can be tied to it. Now, we at least least need to be cutting our education out from international organizations and corporations that have no accountability under our republic system. And so these are the things we have to do with regard to education. I would tell you another watchword. It was somewhere in my notes and it got lost. So the last thing I'll mention right now, the castle is vigorously pushing this thing called communities of practice. This is to match in with what they're calling the WISC model, W-S-C-C, that's pronounced WISC for some reason. It means whole school, whole child, whole community. Every bit of it's to be a community of practice, which sounds an awful lot like a church, that reflects SEL values all around the student, all around the child, all the time. James Comer's whole school has turned into whole everything for a 360 degree fully immersive brainwashing operation. So look into the whole school model, look for community schooling, look at how they're trying to build communities of practice and when you see them crop up in your local environment you need to fight them vigorously they are not the way of the future and most people have no idea what's coming and once they're informed about it they're going to say hell no and they're going to stop it so i'm optimistic we know what the targets are now a year ago we're sitting here screaming about critical race theory and saying they're the real racists and nothing's going anywhere here we are, I guess, 18 months or so down the road, and we're literally shooting our arrows directly at the foundation of their entire program, ESG, SDGs, and SEL. Since this is the education workshop, the Ferrarian method is coming in. The theft of education is coming in through SEL, transSEL in particular. Castle is the name of an organization that you can start going after. And the World Economic Forum, World Bank, and all these huge, scary people are backing it up. All their plans can be destroyed. It's just up to us to get informed and do it. Thank you for coming to my workshop. We'll have Q&A in a little while.